Hello, everybody, and welcome again to the Good Trash Undercast. We gather around a table, we discuss the films you'll never discuss in film today's course. This week's film is Hero, starring Jet Li, uh, starred by Zhang, or directed by Zhang Yamu, and or Yamu Zhang. I'm not sure which one's the right one uh, to say. I know they do the last name first, first name last in China, but because they do it both ways all the time in the American press, I've never learned the guy's real first name. Because, oops. Uh, but anyway, um, we're doing this uh, programmed November marathon. In yeah, this which is your fault. I'm picking the movies. Which is kind of fun. So I picked Hero. And uh, so that's what we're talking about today. I'm still Dustin. I'm still Arthur. And making my triumphant return after getting way too excited during Highlander, it's me, NPR Voice Dalton, uh, live from an undisclosed location. Welcome, welcome. All right, well, so in case you're tuning into the Good Trash Honorcast for the very first time, we need to tell you a few of the ground rules. This is not an analysis. This is an analysis show. It's not a review show, and that does mean we're going to spoil the movie. And this movie is pretty plotty, uh, despite its art house sort of aesthetic. Um, knowing what happened and how it happened is kind of part of the experience of the movie. But we're going to avoid those spoilers for the first part of the show. We'll have a synopsis from the voice of the cinema, or just from Arthur. You're not the voice anymore, um, but I still want to call you that. You're still my voice of my cinema. Forever, Arthur. Oh, and then we'll have our thumbs up, thumbs down reviews quickly, and then we'll move into a game in which we uh, create a thought exercise as though we are creating a class called Expanding the Syllabus. And finally, we have business time where we get down to business and do the analysis, and that's when all the spoiler bets are off. You have been warned, my friends. Uh, so, without any further ado, Dr. Reverend Arthur Gordon, if you would please uh, delight us with that synopsis. Yeah, before I start, I just want a pronunciation. Is it is it Quinn or Ken or Jin? Ken. Ken. Okay. A defense officer, nameless, was summoned by the King of Kin regarding his success of terminating three warriors. Very true. Very true. All of those things are accurate. So, um, there you go, dear listener. Um, that is the movie. So, um, I want to go to you first, Dalton. I think you've seen the movie before, but not since you were a young wee babe uh, wearing diapers, I'm sure. Uh, so, tell us more about your thoughts on Hero. Yes, Dustin, that's right. Uh, I did, in fact, wear lots of diapers uh, through my mid-teens. Uh, I, you know, I had something of a nervous bladder. It uh, checks out. Yeah, you're right. It, it had been about, uh, I probably was 15 or 16 the last time I watched this, and uh, I, I, I loved it a lot. Uh, you know, when this movie was kind of first hitting DVD, um, uh, it was something that I watched quite a bit. Um, because, as Dustin has said, that art house aesthetic that it has is so visually stunning. Uh, and, and I really don't have a lot to say about Hero because I, I think it does kind of speak for itself as a film. I think we'll kind of get into the nuances of its politics and ideology, although uh, director Zhang has uh, made a big point about how he doesn't think this is a political movie. But I think you're legally obligated to say that when you make a movie in mainland China. Um, I, think, I, think they, I think they make you sign a document that says this isn't a political film. Um, who knows? Uh, we get lots of propaganda about the mainland over here. Who can be sure what's true? And that's kind of what I love about this film is it is so much about the malleability of truth. It is the the cool philosophical ponderings of Rashomon uh, packaged in some fantastic wushu. And that's really all you need to know is this movie's got an incredible score. It's got incredible cinematography, production design, fight choreography, top to bottom. This is great a craftsmanship it does feel uh, like something of a middle finger to crouching tiger hidden dragon's success almost being like all right you're going to make this gigantic award sweeping wushu epic that uh, you know the west love here's something even better than that um you know two years later and then four years later uh, do, do we get it over here in north america um, yeah i just like this movie a lot uh, i i think uh anything i say is going to just sound like hyperbole because of how stunning I find this film from start to finish. It drags a little bit, you know. I, I think it's easy to get... There's so many imagined fights and light-about fights in this film. It's easy to lose sight of the plot sometimes, maybe, on first watch. This being, you know, probably my fifth or sixth watch of this film in my life, I was able to... I, I was surprised, actually, at how much of uh, the structure of this film I had remembered and how many of the beats I totally recalled. Uh, and again, again, I think that speaks to the film's craft is once you, you've got it in your blood, it, it is so easy to get back into its rhythms. Um, I will leave you with this. It is the one note I didn't make during Highlander that could have really uh, put me over the edge. Uh, you know, obviously I, I shouted about how great that movie was last week. Uh, I would have gone even further if I'd got to make this note during Highlander, which was murder me sword wife. Um, I will let you gentlemen uh, ponder about which scene in the film Hero that applies to. 
there are in fact several. Uh, yeah, there uh, are. You, uh, God, what a what a great movie! What an incredibly stacked cast! And I guess that's what the last thing I do want to mention. Speaking of Murder Me, Sword Wife, uh, Maggie Chung, so great in this. Uh, Zhi Zhang, uh, Donnie Yen, uh, Tony Leung, Jet Li. Like it's just a murderer's row of of talent. Um, you know, these these are all actors that have had some success in the West. Um, but especially uh, Tony Leung and Maggie Chung, you know, kind of had their um, their, their bigger uh, successes uh, in uh, Chinese cinema. But again, these these are all actors that are just absolutely uh, their accomplishments uh, are, are truly stunning. Again, and we talked about this when we talked about Crouching Tiger, and the you know we kind of made sure we had a working definition of wushu when we went in, but just to kind of. Uh, leave uh, any listener who hasn't you know listened to that episode with this you do have to remember that actors who are working in Chinese wuxia films like this is something you go to school for like you would go to school for doing Shakespeare in the UK like you have to be good at uh, essentially ballet uh, wire work fight choreography uh, and, and acting and a whole bunch of other stuff to even like start thinking about being in a movie like this which I think uh I don't know, man. Uh, it just is a testament to why this genre continues to be so popular globally. Is the the talent required to pull it off is apparent to even the most novice of eyes. Um, and I, I can't wait for us to really crack open Hero and start to dissect what it has to say about uh, nationalism and truth and identity. All righty. Well, thank you very much for that, Mr. Dalton Stewart. Mr. Arthur Gordon, this is your first time watch of the film. How mad at me are you? Oh, very. I, this is a terrible movie. Um, it's completely plotting, uh, slow. I just don't get it at all. Um, really, really? Whoa. I was kidding. Okay. Uh, this movie's really good. <laughs> uh, Man, that would have been fun, though, huh? This, uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's good. Uh, it's, it's really good. Uh, it's a 90-minute film, uh, but it is able to get a lot of weight and scope out of that 90 minutes in a way. A lot of action films can't. Um, the sweeping sets, all that beautiful costuming, production design, uh, really complements the package. Uh, I, I like that quite a bit. Uh, fight scenes are, are great. Um, really, I, I appreciate that kind of philosophical approach to fight scenes and the way those play out. Um, I think that works great here. I, I like the story. I was captivated. It was easy to watch. I never felt uh, until the end that it was plotting. I think it overstates its welcome though. In that finale, I think that kind of goes places. I don't know that it really needs to go. Um, but yeah, I, I think up to that point though, I think it moves really well. I, I'm captivated by the stories. I, I like the back and forth and how, uh, those stakes kind of move back and forth in this sort of tug of war of who's in charge in the room. Mm-hmm. Um, and who's got the upper hand. I think that's a really fun dynamic. I was kind of, concerned because of the way the synopsis is written i think on voodoo where we watched this right where i watched it and i think dalton um and you had mentioned rashomon name name dropped rashomon last week and so pretty early on i was like okay i know where this is going and so for them to start subverting that about that kind of halfway point because it's not rashomon no 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 but that idea of who's telling the truth here and seeing the synopsis about this person avenging stuff is pretty easy to put together what he's doing. But the way it unfolds uh, is really good in kind of subverting those expectations and, and potential plot spoilers that you anticipate if you have Rashomon plus avenging in the same breath. Um, and so I, I appreciated that. And, and even had it gone the way I thought it was going to go, I think I still would have enjoyed it because I think it's just so well constructed and well laid out um, that it wouldn't have mattered. I I think it still would have been a rewarding watch. But with the way it does play out and and these kind of layers of narrative um, that are always clear, I think, that it's able to maintain that clarity of what's going on, what's not. And I I really appreciate that about it. Um, I mean, it's it's handled so well. I really don't have anything negative. I don't think to say other than I think it does kind of stall out in the end. I think when it starts doing those sort of epilogues, it, it kind of drowns down and, and loses any kind of momentum or goodwill it had. Uh, but other than that, I, I think up to that point it's, it's aces and really glad I got to watch it. Really glad we got around to it. 
I almost watched Shadow afterward to get a, just to good. to have something else from Zhang Zhimu, Zhang Zhu, Zhang Zhimu, yeah, um, under my belt because I hadn't seen anything, and so I didn't get the opportunity to do that. But I'm glad I got to watch this. Uh, really dug it quite a bit, and so yeah, good pick. Awesome, awesome. Well, I'm glad you guys both like this movie very much. Obviously, I picked the movie because I do dig it. It is very good. The action movies are solid. The ma- action movies, action scenes are solid. Uh, the performances are great. Um, it's fun to see Ji Zhang back from Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon uh, doing some work. Well, and also uh, the director's uh, film uh, House of Flying Daggers, right? The same yeah. director? Yeah, same director as House of Flying Daggers. So, yeah, Yang Jimu, uh, if you're thinking of... What uh, his uh, filmography would be, it'd be this film, House of Flying, and Shadow would be the ones probably to catch uh, for that. So, uh, yeah, very, very, very good work. And, uh, you know, working with this uh, sort of a, a consistent stable of actors and actresses that are really, really solid. As you've already mentioned, production design is great. I think I needed a, a bit uh, more Donnie Yen, though. Uh, just more Donnie Yen, please. Uh, because his particular bit of the narrative gets uh, sewn up pretty quickly. Yeah. Um, and uh, mm. that's unfortunate and sad because Donnie Yen is amazing, and I just want more of that. Um, you know what my one thought, uh, yeah. my thought about that was, Dustin? Because I thought the same thing. I remembered there being more Donnie Yen. I'm wondering if, because he's a huge star. I'm wondering if he was like, all right, well, if I'm not the star of this movie, if Jet Li's the star of this, then you got me for a week. Right. <laughs> and I'm out. <laughs> So I will choreograph one fight scene, you know, as opposed to three different versions of the same fight scene wearing a slightly different colored tunic, right? Yeah, um, you got me for a fight scene, exactly. And that is all I got. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's you know, fine. Uh, but, uh, yeah, the music is great. Um, I, again, slow motion photography, the use of weather, um, just uh, atmospherics using leaves and wind and sand and rainwater uh, throughout the film is just really brilliant. It is uh, one of the most meditative anti-violence violence films um, I've seen in a long time. And uh, so that's interesting uh, to me. And I just find it to be and then on, on that sort of cusp of uh, – filmmaking after uh, the success of Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. You see several films like this being produced and some films that were produced quite a bit earlier uh, make their way into rotation in American cinemas, uh, sort of trying to jump on uh, the uh, Crouching Tiger bandwagon. And so it's kind of part of that uh, bit of a moment in uh, international cinema and so or transnational cinema, moving the uh, Chinese Hong Kong work, uh, not just mainland Chinese, but also Hong Kong work over here to the U.S. So so uh, it's, it's a good exemplar for that and uh, might be more fun to watch than Crouching Tiger. I said it. Crouching Tiger may be a better movie, but this may be more entertaining. Yeah. Um, so um, that's all I want to say about that. There you go, dear listener. Our biases are pro. Let's play our thought game. We're going to construct a syllabus. This is called expanding the syllabus. And so we're going to construct a class in which we're teaching the film hero with what other film shall we teach it. I go to you first, Dalton. What do you say? Ooh, uh, lo- lo- love to get to tell my class first, uh, talk about my class first, rather. Uh, so we are going to be doing one of those uh, those classes that I often structure where we're going to be using a lot of movies to not really talk about movies at all. Um, uh, insofar as that we're, we're kind of more concerned with the stories that we tell each other about uh, ideas. Uh, so this is this class is Honor, Identity, and a Higher Loyalty. Uh, just going to be kind of examining several different stories uh, kind of split up by theme uh, or subject matter uh, and, and looking at what each of these stories has to offer us about people's loyalty. So we'll be looking a lot at both ideas of, you know, hometown pride or, or uh, nationalistic pride. Uh, we'll be looking at um, these matters of truth. Well, the lies that we tell ourselves, the lies that we tell the people around us, um, and the, the times in which people choose to be their most honest selves um, and, and what people's breaking point uh, people's breaking points are when it comes to um, dishonesty with oneself uh, and dishonesty with one's goals. And I think that's one of the things I like about Hero so much is the way it plays uh, with this push and this pull of you know personal loyalty uh, versus some sort of larger loyalty 
beyond oneself uh, or even one's family. Uh, so we'll start with Hero uh, and Rashomon, both because of you know their Eastern cinema uh, origins, but also because of this these interweaving uh, narratives of, of many tales. Uh, and then we'll look at a, a very American kind of look at that sort of story, and we'll look at Syriana by Stephen Gagan, um, the screenwriter of uh, Soderbergh's Traffic. Um, it was his follow-up to Traffic that kind of looks at the oil industry through the same uh, multinational, uh, transnational, uh, to, to borrow a word from Dustin, a uh, great word, uh, but to borrow, uh, to, to take that kind of transnational look at the drug trade that they use in traffic and to apply that to the oil industry. Um, not a great film, you know, not without its missteps and one I haven't been compelled to rewatch since I first saw it, uh, probably around the same time that I watched Hero for the first time. But there's a lot of really cool uh, and interesting ideas at work in uh, Syriana, even if they don't all totally come together. But uh, parts of that come from Stephen Gagan's pretty uh, extensive research that went into that film. Um, he basically demanded, uh, because this was a, you know, the studio basically was telling him to do whatever he wanted. So he said, all right, well, whatever I want to do is to do as much research on this for as long as I have to. Uh, so he met with... Uh, you know, people from Hezbollah, he met with uh, CIA moles and, uh, you know, uh, assets and uh, intelligence officers and all kinds of folks that uh, people don't normally meet with when they make a movie. Uh, so I think Syriana kind of carries these themes forward into the 21st century in really interesting ways. Next, we'll look at uh, the, the dark reflection, the war within, kind of more focused in on on these ideas uh, of the war that happens within a person. Um, and again, I think we see that with Nameless throughout this film, right? Um, and both with Nameless and Broken Sword and Flying Snow um, in, in terms, and again, to, we're treading a little bit into spoiler territory now, uh, but this idea of uh, trying to decide what the truest thing for you to do is and what the right thing for an individual to do is. So we'll look at Counterpart, uh, uh, with J.K. Simmons and Us, the Jordan Peele film, uh, both both films that deal with uh, encountering one's double, uh, encountering a, a different, potentially more uh, insidious version of oneself, uh, and, and trying to reckon with uh, how we become the person that we become. Um, again, uh, a more abstract way to look at the themes of Hero, but I, th I think a fun one. Uh, we'll also be looking at Tony Leung's The Grand Master, um, where he, uh, him and obviously Donnie Yen have both played uh, it Mon, uh, but uh, you know, Donnie Yen's made something of a, a cottage industry doing it, uh, and Tony Leung only did it the one time uh, for director Wong Kar Wai, uh, and we'll pair that film with the series Wayne and the Karate Kid remake uh, legacy sequel, I, I guess is actually the better word, uh, Cobra Kai, which I just started checking out and have been shocked at how good it is, <laughs> shocked at how interesting it is, uh, and, and I think uh, the TV show Wayne is, is very much a show about hometown pride and being a, you know, a Boston knucklehead uh, and, uh, you know, looking, examining a working class toughness. And I, I think you get a lot of those ideas of working class toughness within the Grandmaster, uh, but also you get the complexities of class going on in early 20th century China, especially within um, the martial arts world. Um, and so all three of these stories, and again, with Cobra Kai, you get to a look at class and martial arts, and uh, all, all three of these are st become stories that are, are, are very much about f choosing what you fight for, uh, as Hero does become, you know, a story about uh, fighting for, you know, the future of one's people. Uh, these stories become about fighting for one's own future in ways that I think are really interesting. Uh, next, we are going to look at some take the nationalism of hero and kind of apply it more broadly to spy films. Uh, we'll get Tinker Taylor soldier spy, uh, fail safe, uh, and 13 days, not all explicitly spy stories, but all stories about, uh, the large, uh, global threat that was the cold war and, and the threat of nuclear war throughout, uh, that, that, that cold war, uh, and just kind of examining when people choose to put aside nationalistic loyalties to larger global loyalties. Uh, and then we'll immediately pivot from that to zero dark 30, eye in the sky and uh, good kill, uh, kind of looking at the war on terror comparing and contrasting it with the Cold War, which is, you know, a thing that we've done in some classes before, uh, but I think it'll be useful. Uh, and to just kind of bring that all home, we'll look at American Ultra, a film written by, I believe, Miss Pac-Man, my notes are telling me. 
um, is, is who wrote that film, American Ultra, with Jesse Eisenberg and Kristen Stewart. Uh, not a great film, but I think a fun spy movie in that it's about, as Dustin said, Hero is a great anti-violence violence film. And I think in its best moments, American Ultra kind of examines the fantasy of waking up with spy powers a la Jason Bourne and, and I think does a really good job of interrogating where those uh, those ideas come from. Uh, next, we'll remove nation states entirely from the equation and we'll look at stories like Blade Runner, The Expanse, and Johnny Mnemonic uh, and how once uh, capital gets concentrated uh, outside of the grasp of nations, uh, how people's love of money and labels uh, finds a way to build borders between us even without nations and i think that's some really interesting stuff there and of course we will be looking at some documentaries such as wormwood um which is a documentary about some of the lsd experiments that the cia did uh really good errol morris doc series and we'll also look at enemies um the president justice and the fbi which i think errol morris was a producer on if not the main creative uh, uh person behind it uh but again a a look at uh, some of the real world implications uh, of these stories we'll be examining in, a, in this class. So once we kind of get through the stories, we can kind of pivot to the real world, uh, and that's why there are so many based-in-truth stories uh, throughout the movies we'll be looking at. Uh, because we do, I do want to eventually take us to what are the implications of, of these ideas in the real world? Because again, Hero is very much about the myth-making uh, of the unification of China. Uh, you know, the, the Warring States period uh, happens in what, two, three to 200 BC or so, BCE? Uh, so this is a long damn time ago. Uh, and I think we here in the West don't consider enough the lengthy cultural continuity uh, of, of uh, the Chinese nation. Uh, and we do so at our own peril because this is, uh, I don't know, I, I have, uh, you know, we, we talk a lot about Kung Fu cinema on this show, not just because it's uh, one of Dustin's primary uh, areas of, of, of study, but it also because we like action movies. And action movies owe a great deal, uh, a great debt to Chinese cinema. Uh, and, and I think when we talk about um, cinema from China, whether it's Hong Kong or the mainland, I think we have to do our best, even if, you know, uh, you're a dumb dumb like me and haven't spent nearly enough time studying this stuff. Uh, you still have to try and think about the historical and cultural context uh, where stories are made uh, to best understand them. Uh, so that's the class. I know it's a little bit of a hodgepodge, uh, but I, again, I think the theme connections are there, and I, I think there are good questions to be asked uh, about the nature of loyalty and the nature of truth. All righty. Well, thank you very much for that, Dalton. That sounds fascinating uh, to me. So, Arthur, what does your class look like? Yeah, I, I think I want to pick up on a continuation of the storytelling class from a couple of weeks ago when we looked at the number 23. Uh, I think this obviously would fit in well there. Um, but also just kind of continuing some of that stuff. I want to, I think, start with the anchor text from that class, which was Big Fish, which is about uh, this people telling stories that are hard to believe, but maybe they're true. Um, I think that's just such an interesting concept, especially trying to reconcile that with the the father-son relationship. Um, so I think that's just really interesting. And, and, you know, this hero deals some with relationships as well, um, not paternal, but there are, you know, intimate relationships uh, and stories combined, and I think there are connections there. Uh, obviously, Rashomon also, uh, just because it's the, I think, key text that you're going to reference obviously it's come up several times already uh, so i think that would have to be looked at and just the nature of storytelling and narrators in, in in general um from there i want to look at a couple of more unreliable narrators uh so i want to take a look at fallen and jennifer's body uh nice. which both have these kind of wraparound uh, voiceovers that can alter the way you view the movies and the events you've seen and question the reality they're in uh, so I think that's just a really interesting dynamic as well, which really digs into that unreliable narrator trope. Um, from there, I, I think I would probably go with a movie um, that is in itself, I think, an unreliable narrator uh, because it's hard to follow what's happening and what is real and what's not real. I want to look at Jacob's Ladder mm -hmm. in that way and the sort of almost meta deconstruction of... Uh, that omnipresent narrator that is the camera. Uh, from there, I want to get into some meta storytelling as well, which kind of think kind of follows with what I'm talking about in Jacob's Ladder. But these movies acknowledge what they're doing, and I want to look at Blazing Saddles and I think Holy Grail, maybe Holy Mountain, uh, because they do that similar pull. Um, 
and just kind of really dig into storytelling on the whole. And I, I was thinking about this maybe for like a creative writing course or even a script mm-hmm. course. I think just the nature of narration and using the camera as the narrator and how that works and what that looks like and functions like, uh, as well as just kind of how some of these tropes uh, play out and what they look like. Uh, so I think that would be my my syllabus for that that course and continuing that storytelling uh, narrative. Very cool, very cool. Thank you very much for that, Arthur. And I like the sound of this bigger course you keep building as we keep moving our way through. That's fun times by me. Yeah, the yeah, I'm right there with you, Dustin. Uh, Arthur, the the kind of continued permutations of this class of like f- further again getting a little bit uh, more into meta storytelling uh, with with this version of the course or this continuation of it. Yeah, I, I really I love it. Big fan. Very cool, very cool. So if I was going to teach a class using this movie, I think I would have to think about it in the context probably of a larger international cinema, like the creation of the art houses and uh, the times in which uh, cinema does sort of move in that international kind of way and uh, focus on China, both Hong Kong and mainland and doing that. I'd probably open up with Enter the Dragon. Uh, since it is a co-production with Golden Harvest and Warner Brothers, and uh, that initial sort of a launch of Bruce Lee to stardom, unfortunately, uh, released after his death, untimely death. And so I, I think that's where I would probably begin with that, and then I would probably flash on forward into that Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon moment. I think we would definitely use Crouching Tiger as a film for that, and then move backward in time to Ashes of Time, a Wong Kar Wai film, uh, which has basically got the same cast, except for instead of Gigi Zhang, we have Bridget Lin um, uh, doing a, a similar Terrence Malakian kind of kung fu wuxia film. Uh, brilliantly beautiful film, released in 1994, but released in the United States in 2002 hmm. because they just made a whole bunch of money off of Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. And they thought, oh man, I mean, if these guys over there at, uh, you know, uh, uh, Sony Pictures Classics are making this kind of money. We got to make this money too. And then the Miramax folks get in on it, and they are going to be buying up Hero and making sure some funding gets up for that. And so Hero would play its way uh, into that filmmaking bit. And then just flashing backward just a little bit there at the end, I think uh, Terrence Teen, uh, T- Quentin Tarantino's. I can't even say his Terrence name. Tarantino. Quentin Quentin Tarantino's. Uh, Terrence Quarantino. Quentin Tostino's <laughs> Pizzerinos. Quentin. <laughs> <laughs> that guy who makes them action movies, uh, them heck of violent movies, uh, looking at Iron Monkey uh, and uh, his Rolling Thunder productions, uh, that kind of wasn't ever a thing, uh, doing a sort of a re-release distribution model uh, for some older films, but uh, Iron Monkey is an example of that, and of course the Harvey Weinstein shears being a- a- applied to that film. Uh, to snip it up for American audiences, does also make some interesting uh, food for thought in discussion. So You're uh, absolutely right, Dustin. Sonic the Hedgehog, a notorious uh, pr- producer uh, when it comes to chopping up other countries' movies when packaging them for U.S. distribution. There is a, definitely a thing there. So uh, Anyway, uh, that would be uh, the class as I would lay it out. and It would be, uh, again, a, cl- uh, a module within a class probably broadly looking at, okay, let's think about Japanese cinema, and now let's think about Italian cinema, French cinema, and probably Russian cinema as the various sections of the class um, is maybe how I would approach it and how their internationalisms uh, would work out in terms of marketability and finding an audience internationally speaking. So there you go, dear listener. Uh, your syllabus just got quite a bit longer. Uh, let's move on, though, because I think it's time to get down to business. It's business. It's business time. And this week, as we talk Hero, this is one of Dustin's picks. We're celebrating him all month. And so, for the listeners maybe not as aware, uh, Dustin's been doing his PhD work for the last couple of years and really has focused in on this genre of of filmmaking, this mode of filmmaking that is Kung Fu and and martial arts. Um, So I, I, I just want to know... In your work, have you used Hero as an example much, and where has it come up, or has it come up in your studies at all? It does come up some. It's it's kind of an augment because uh, I'm really focused in the 1960s and 70s on Bruce Lee and uh, this copying process, uh, those uh, Bruce Lee clones and stuff that follow thereafter. But uh, what I'm trying to sort of uh, suss out is this uh, 
production model of genre filmmaking, where their repetition becomes a really key aspect to that. Rep- repetition with slight variation, and to keep that variation as slight as possible. Uh, in the case of this film, um, it does come up in terms of repetition regarding another cycle of films, a sort of wuxia, because wuxia does seem like a different kind and a mode of kung fu filmmaking than the sort of real world, uh, on the street kind of grounded uh, kung fu movie that a Bruce Lee film is. Uh, and so uh, that's the first thing. But Jet Li himself, as an actor, very much was packaged as the next Bruce Lee. I mean, a lot of what's going on that copying process is how do we replace the absence of Lee, uh, and Bruce Lee, with the two E's. I guess I can't say Lee and Lee because that gets confusing, doesn't it? Uh, saying it out loud. Um, and so it does come into play because uh, His Fist of Fury obviously is a remake of a Bruce Lee film, and it is kind of a big breakout moment for Jet Li uh, in the in Hong Kong cinema. And uh, then you know his appearance in the Lethal Weapon films, which does very much feel like Green Hornet kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And the ways in which uh, those careers begin to model one another uh, in interesting kinds of ways. And so uh, Jet Li more so than Hero particularly, but Hero does uh, show us that once something works, we make lots of it. And again, when I say something works, it works in that it makes money. Um, because Ashes of Time worked from Wong Kar Wai. It's a great movie. It's it's brilliant and it's thoughtful. And it did find some international flavor fanfare. It just didn't make any money. It just yeah. didn't get the distribution uh, because people didn't make the bet on the thing. Uh, when uh, Sony Pictures Classics made the bet and went ahead and said, I think we can do something with Ang Lee's Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, and it did do so well, then everybody and their monkey jumped in on it. Crouching Tiger, Hidden Monkey uh, jumped in on it and tried Hidden, hidden Iron Monkey. Uh, began to find ways to make this uh, cycle of films, actually just to create the cycle itself. Yeah. yeah, You're absolutely right. It is kind of this created after the fact cycle of cinema because, yeah, you know, Wuxia never has stopped, has never been unpopular right. uh, in, in certain parts of the world, right? It's, it's not, it is just kind of, it's like, a, it's like Westerns. There's always money to be made in it. And, and you're right to bring up the, the kind of myth, mythological, nature of wuxia this operatic i mean again more words that mean big and grand <laughs> right that, that is kind of the the order of the day when you're talking about this kind of martial arts film but i, I think it is good that you bring up gently uh, just as a you know an actor whose career is, is so much built on the foundation uh, laid by bruce lee uh, because jet like has this this fascinating career right you mentioned kind of like quote-unquote realistic you know street martial arts films and he's got that he's got you know, these roles, like you said, in, in Lethal Weapon 4, but even some more of his early American stuff definitely feels kind of in that. Uh, he, he is a character that is uh, definitely exotified, uh, at least in the marketing, if not in the entirety of the film, right? When he's breaking into the West. And again, when you look at his, his work in China, it, it's not just Wuxia stuff. Like, it's he, he's done all kinds of different films uh, and it does make him again the the length of career that we've gotten from him and even jackie chan uh but i think jackie chan kind of like works better in a a particular mode i don't know that he's quite as versatile as jet Li is as an actor uh, and as a screen presence but i'm glad that you brought up jet again to just to kind of talk about him in comparison to bruce and and to kind of compare and contrast those careers because i think there are lots of interesting reflections within them and I think we could go further on this and talk about just the mode of the uh, sort of wuxia kind of style of film because those mm. films are being made. Some of the greatest wuxia films are being made at the same time that Bruce Lee is having his huge breakout. They're just not totally making the yeah, same the kind of – yeah, King Hu's Touch of Zen, uh, uh, Dragon Gate Inn, uh, also by King Hu, uh, f- uh, featuring uh, Pei Pei Mang, uh, who is great as an actress. Uh, and, uh, and she does have an appearance as um, – Oh, the lady with the deer knives. It's so scary in Crouching Tiger. The mean old lady. What's her name? Yeah, we talked about Something her and Fox. her career. A, yeah, we talked yeah. about her career a lot. If you want to go back to Crouching Tiger and listen to that episode. But um, anyway, uh, that whole deal, though, uh, those movies are, are there. And they're still being made in China. They're still making some move, m- money. But they're not having the same sort of international success until Crouching Tiger. And the movies that are having international success coming out of China in the martial arts mode of film or genre of filmmaking are those 
shows that are in that sort of uh, Bruce Lee mode of street fighting, realistic contemporary settings uh, where uh, there there's as much realism as possible in the fight choreography. And I say as possible. We know that there's not much realism at all in there, but something uh, more closely akin to... Uh, it feels more grounded or gritty rather yeah. than this kind of more fantastical style of uh, the, the rope stuff. The balletic, yeah, yeah wire foo stuff that you see uh, in the other films. Yeah. So yeah, that's yeah, you, I mean that's kinda... yeah. The, go ahead, Dalton. Uh, oh no, I was just gonna I was just gonna comment on the, the you know the, the kind of different modes of of action fake uh, filmmaking that exists in China and like you know you've got um, oh my gosh hard boiled and uh, oh the early oh my god it's the director of Crouching Tiger help me out here Dustin Angley having a huge not Angley oops I am wrong because um, uh, you talking about John Wu. I'm thinking of John Woo. There we go. Sorry, fellas. I, I think John Woo, and especially like his early bullet ballet stuff, like uh, Hard Boiled and uh, with Chow Yun Fat. Uh, yeah, yeah. That that kind of is this weird uh, middle ground between some, the Wushu and something like a Drug War uh, by Johnny Toe, right? Which is, as you said, kind of more interested in trying to uh, portray realistic, quote unquote, combat. Uh, I, I think you're right, though, just uh, to, to mention that there is such a, a broad spectrum of, of the ways in which martial arts exist within Chinese cinema. Yeah, and I think Hero is an interesting uh, case study because it um, definitely dances between the two different tensions. That If you look at the fight scenes, for the most part, in Crouching Tiger, they are overwhelmingly wired. Um, they're overwhelmingly balletic. I mean, there are moments where they're sort of legitimate... Uh, fight choreography that you could just do with two people standing on the ground. Uh, but in Hero, we have a, a mix of that. I mean, that Donnie Yen <laughs> fight scene at the beginning of the film in which Donnie Yen and Jet Li are fighting, there's a lot of them just going toe-to-toe with his spear versus his sword, and then it will break away into these longer sort of balletic sort of interludes. And it, and it works much more, uh, and I think the motif is there on purpose, of the guy playing uh, the zither uh, there beside him as uh, uh, a musical thing, and that there, there are these sort of rests between major movements in the musicality of that, and and the rests are between movements of, again, something more fantastical, less realistic, and that which is much more grounded, uh, hardcore, again, just fight choreography. And, well, and uh, that's interesting to just, me. Yeah, yeah the, the musicality that you just touched on is so important, right? Because I think the best fight choreography is, is choreography that acknowledges uh, the musicality of a fight scene, whether it is trying to weave the the tempo the the literal you know sound design beats of two people throwing hands at each other you know whether you're not trying to match that with the score or trying to turn that sound design into its own kind of score um you know there's many schools of uh, of practice on how to do that but wh- however you do it bringing that musicality of the fight to the forefront is what makes it so watchable it's and that's i, I like you said i think that's part of what makes hero so successful is that it does uh, knows when to lean into the, the kind of ballet aspects uh, of good martial arts cinema. Yeah, for sure. Um, let's move into some more thematics now that we have uh, talked uh, sort of genre stuff and mode stuff uh, a bit here. Um, let's talk about the film, and I think the uh, the nationalist um, charge against it is legitimate, um, that this idea that um, take the tyrant for the sake of unity, um, it does feel um, a bit Stalinist in that sense. Well, and it ha- yeah, it happens behind the camera. I don't know how much uh, of, of my research is would, would bear out truth if you did some hardcore breaking down into it, but uh, I did do some research, and Director Zhang was something of a tyrant on set, right? Like, the, those yellow leaves did not get there by themselves. <laughs> it was mm-hmm. all kinds of truly nut stuff going on in it and the, that that lake that looks like class that that only happened for two hours a day like there's all kinds of stories like that about just the the nutso lengths that had to be gone to to get these shots that uh, the director wanted uh which is you know you could talk about lots of filmmakers this is this is not you know this knows no national boundaries. The, the director has tyrant. So anytime a director Hitchcock is cases examining, come to mind immediately, right? Think, well, I was thinking of Fincher and Kubrick, but yeah, exactly. Like all kinds of much beloved directors from uh, you know all, all uh, different uh, national origins uh, do this kind of tyr- tyrannical filmmaking. Um, and any time that we have a director that is known to be particular like this, uh, when they are examining totalitarianism or fascism or despotism of any kind, 
uh, you really have to like squint even harder at, at the production and the the themes going on within the or the at least the themes you're supposedly being handed. Uh, I don't know if the, did that did that make sense. I can't see your faces right now, so I can't read how uh, how well I'm I'm playing to the two of you. No, I think so. I think so, and I do think there's something autobiographical there uh, in uh, some of the style. But I, I think the other part of it, though, is just this idea of uh, better the unifier who uh, will end the violence eventually if we only let the revolution. Right. This is again sort of Stalinist propaganda in the Soviet Union, uh, reflective, you know, in a Chinese context here, uh, where if we allow, you know, Mao Zedong or another similar kind of figure, um, the leeway to go ahead and do the reprehensible violence at the outset, what we get on the backside of that is a relative level of peace. And the film does kind of argue that that unity is worth it to make it this land our land. I mean, quite literally. Yeah, except. The guy who did that, the great unifier, the first emperor of China, also uh, was the same dude that built the terracotta army. So that, that leading that kind of life makes it impossible for you to, like, sleep with both eyes closed, uh, even in death, mm-hmm. right? Like, that's the kind of person you end up being if you take it upon yourself to be the great unifier, to do all the violence that is necessary. You end up a sad, lonely weirdo. Yeah, for sure. Um, which is, you know, why, yeah, which is why I brought up uh, Cobra Kai. Uh, you know, it also it just happens to be something I've been watching this past week, but I think it does kind of thematically mesh with this so well. It's way, it, in so far as that all stories about like personal sacrifice for greatness uh, kind of ha- have a lot of similarities because they do become about how you alienate people uh, in your pursuit of, of single minded glory. No, I tend to agree, but I, I tend to think that the film itself does the valorization because we don't have the yeah. terracotta armies, and so you know, nameless because he chooses to die for the sake of the cause, so to speak, he becomes a sacrifice. He's a martyr, you know, a martyr. Yeah, yeah that that brings about you know that's that, that is a tragedy. It seems that it, we're supposed to read his death as tragic, but thank God for sure. it. Sure, you know exactly. Well, and that's kind of why I am just kind of picking apart the film's argument so hard because, as, as Arthur said, it is the end of the film. That gets a little long in the tooth, and uh, it does look like there are, uh, you know, there is a two-hour version of the film. Uh, I just found out, which I had been wondering, hmm. uh, because you're right, the 90 minutes is so lean and it, it moves so well. But it felt like there were moments where I was like, eh, it feels like there's a beat or two missing here, uh, and it does seem as though there's both a 120-minute cut and a 107-minute cut of the film. Which, you know, I mentioned the Grandmaster earlier. Uh, you know, another uh, Chinese release that has like four different run times based on, you know, where you saw, whether it was in North America or Europe or Southeast Asia. Um, but to Arthur's point, like whatever cut you're watching, the end of this film kind of drags. And I think part of it is it wants to have its cake and eat it too, right? It wants to say that, well, you just got to have the one violent dude who's willing to stop violence forever. Uh, but it also wants to valorize the person that says, no dice, dude, you don't get to make those decisions for people. Um, and that's, it's, a, I don't know, it's just talking out of both sides of its mouth in a way that doesn't totally land, considering especially like the great film that precedes the last five minutes or so. Right, yeah, and I, I think it is ideologically confused, because I think a film about not seeking vengeance would have found a different kind of resolution. Uh, if if that was only the thing upon which it was meditating, is that this path of vengeance would lead to self-destruction. Um, I, I think uh, that kind of film would probably have resulted in the death of the king and then uh, the consequent catastrophe that would later befall Nameless. And, uh, the still surviving at this point, we can say this, Broken Sword and Moon. Uh, the, the Well, I guess at that point, uh, I guess Moon, Broken Sword, and uh, Flying Snow are still alive, aren't they? Uh, because in the white version of the story... Um, they're all alive. Um, they all survive uh, their encounters, right? Um, so uh, I'm trying to remember. I do believe uh, we get um, post nameless going to the emperor's, well, the soon to be emperor's court. Uh, I do believe that that we do get you know the white costumes, which are you know usually letting us know that what we're seeing is a thing that's actually happening. Isn't that where we get flying snow? Yeah, uh, when she finally does sword. kill broken sword. Yeah, yeah, and herself. Yeah. Yeah, but that all is happening like kind of concurrently with Nameless storming the castle, so to speak. Right, and and the, well, I guess post because he got the yellow flag, right? Yeah, uh, after you're right. The, it's after he's right. left. I forgot about that. Yep. But it's but, but that's again not played as consequences of revenge. I mean, she's still vengeful and does not want to settle for peace, and he does and allows him again allows himself to be victoriously martyred and sacrificed for that. And her suicide there seems to be much more elegiac and almost romantic. 
uh, yeah. in the way that it plays, rather yeah. than um, the disastrous consequence of her terrible, you know, um, bitter root of uh, vengefulness uh, having raised up in her heart. It, it, it to me plays a, a significantly bit more just sad, uh, not sad even, but sad in a bittersweet kind of way, rather than sad well, in like this disastrous, you know, Shakespearean kind of tragedy yeah. where like if you had only been paying attention, you moron. This wouldn't have happened to you. It, uh, it the the narration of the film doesn't seem to indicate like you jackwagon. What's wrong with you, Hamlet? Why didn't you just kill Claudius in the first act? Kind of thing, right? Yeah, I mean, this is why I made the note: "Murder me, sword wife." Uh, as Arthur is, uh, you know, so often has to uh, tell us about characters in the film. Lots of people are pumping in this movie. Uh, and to borrow uh, or a paraphrase from the comic book saga, uh, the opposite of war is pumping. Um, and I, I think that that is something that this film gets at a few times, and it doesn't really commit to it. It's something that you also see in the work of Hideo Kojima a little bit, uh, this idea that, like, no, it, it, and again, in Hero, we do get this idea that the, the ultimate goal is the laying down of arms, uh, and it is interesting the way in which that's kind of, that theme becomes kind of centralized on the relationship of broken sword and flying snow and, and this this push and pull of this desire to be to be lovers and to have peace and this idea that you can only have peace after one final great battle that you can't just choose whenever you want to lay down arms uh which again you know brings in the the loyalty and honor stuff that was kind of uh that, that I think is really foundational to this film, but was also sort of what I was trying to work on in my syllabus, right? Was just this idea is transcultural, transnational, like th this idea of, of some sort of grand finale, some grand battle that uh, you have to do to prove your loyalty to your cause before you can lay down arms is, I don't know, probably a lie uh, meant to propagate this sort of conflict. Yeah, I think so. I think so um, for sure. Uh, I want to shift gear again just a little bit, and I want to think about gender just a bit uh, in terms of this vengeance and vengefulness uh, theme within the film. Because the two characters, um, and really, I mean, to an extent, the third character being the uh, emperor, uh, the king himself, uh, that are able to sort of cop to let bygones be bygones, you know, uh, take, the, take the high road, be rational about this. Um, they're all male characters. You know, with the uh, the possible exception of um, uh, again Sky, uh, who we don't really get a whole lot of insight into, although he allows himself to be killed, it seems, uh, for the sake of the cause uh, as well. So he still goes in that male category. But I don't want to say too much there because he is an underdeveloped character. But Moon and Flying Snow, uh, both in I mean the sort of realistic version and in some of the fantastical or uh, supposed versions of the events, um, surmised versions, maybe a better way of saying it, of the events, uh, are, are very hot-blooded, vengeful, um, and uh, seeking, uh, again, sort of an emotionality of, I've been wronged and I will, be, and I will see my justice done. Uh, in the case of Moon, if uh, it turns out that uh, Broken Sword really is her lover, or at other points where she's just faithful to her uh, her master and is willing to kill anybody in order to gain what, what is hers or gain the vengeance that she deserves against Nameless or against uh, Flying Snow. And uh, the way in which uh, those characters who are not aspiring to the higher Confucian route here of the film are all women. And uh, I, I think it, it, we would be amiss not to simply, at least, if nothing else, not to name check that uh, it's dudes who get it because I guess they're rational and ladies who don't because they're emotional. And, uh, you know, rain on that is what I want to say. I don't know. I think it's more complicated than that. Uh, I'm sure there are. Yeah, go ahead. Is, you know, maybe it is Western eyes on a decidedly non-Western story uh, and mode of storytelling. But I, I, I think... Flying Snow and Moon are, are both shown to have a – again, you're right. They, they don't conform to a sort of uh, – what you which historically wouldn't have been Confu Confucian uh, yet, but this idea of higher loyalties, right? Um, and and it, here I will try to tread lightly on what little history research I did because so much of what we – uh, is in the historical record on the first emperor of China it comes from the, the Han dynasty uh, that succeeded him uh, in his dynasty. Um, and a lot of that was, you know, uh, they did what they do, what, what all uh, new uh, bosses do is they have to shit talk the old boss, right? So there, there is a great burning of a, of a library uh, and some uh, murdering of scholars that took place early in this reign. But 
it is kind of agreed upon now in the historical record that those things might uh, have been exaggerated after the fact. Uh, but again, you have these two characters who are more committed to personal loyalty than any sort of national loyalty. Uh, and, and you are right that this does get centered on female characters, and there is sort of a, a gendering of their motivations, right? It is it is motivated. The motivation is always love, which, you know, is something that you know, we talked about gender with Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, and I think those missteps are a little, while there are some some kind of issues with gender in that film, I think that film does a better job of letting love be a motivation for lots of people uh, and not just women. Um, and and I, I think you're right, Dustin, that there, this film does struggle, even with Broken Sword as sort of this uh, kind of, I, I wouldn't go as far as to call him a Lothario, but like, the, you know, the sexy fighter, the fighter who is also a lover, right? Mm -hmm. The sensitive warrior, um, you know, is, is a trope that exists in a lot of, I mean, it exists in a lot of the stories that I brought up for my syllabus. So I don't I, I think it's more complicated than you've laid it out, but at the same time, you're right. It is troublesome to say the least uh but i i, I think I, I don't know i i'm of two minds about it i guess and part of that is because moon and flying snow end up kind of at ideological opposites of one another right yeah they're not exactly the same for sure in, in their motivations and their final positions but it does seem like their um uh their steps that get there are similar and again i i just i i, I sense something gendered there and gendered not in a uh uh, egalitarian kind of way. Yeah, sure. And I think the most unegalitarian gendering that goes on, and I guess this is why I wanted to complicate it, is both in Nameless's telling of events and the Emperor's uh, or the then King's assumption of events, right? right. Like those two versions of the story are the ones that portray Flying Snow and Moon as uh, the least rational, quote unquote, right? Yeah, uh, the red just, version and the, the blue just, version, uh, if yeah, you're watching the story, at home. There we go. That's a great way to see. Yeah, the, the red and blue versions of the story uh, are the ones that make the most out of their su the, the supposed uh, uh, inscrutable whims of the fairer sex. I guess is is you know the fancy way to say it. Uh, <laughs> but again, the, the still sexist, fancier way to say uh, this is how Nameless and, and the King tell the story. Right? Is is the one that makes the most out of those gender differences. Right. Um, yeah. I, I, would I, go... I don't know. You're right, Dustin. There's a lot of interrogation worth worth happening. Well, and I guess the uh, the further step I'd make in terms of gender is that we have a red version of the story, which is uh, Nameless's Jet Li's version of the story. Then we have a red, uh, blue version of it, which is the uh, surmised version. Uh, uh, sort of the, the initial lie is the red version from Jet Li. Then the surmised, I don't think so, so much version uh, from uh, the king. Yeah. And then um, we have what, what becomes the white version of the story. Which seems to be the true version of the story, but in the middle of the white version, we have Broken Sword telling his version of some earlier events, which is a green version. Yeah, we get of, green for all flashbacks. Yeah, yeah, for that for that particular bit of flashbacking there, and so um, it is interesting that in within all of this sort of uh, storytelling and various modes of storytelling and various modes of perspective, um, men get stories and women don't. Because we don't have a yeah. moon story, we don't have a flying snow story, and uh, that troubles me as well. Although one could argue that the truth being the truth, it is perhaps flying snow and moon story as well. But they are which all... does present yeah. Oh, go ahead. Dustin. I, Sorry. But they're but they're still narrated by nameless. Well, exactly. They're still narrated by a man, and I was going to say that to just kind of pivot back slightly uh, to our kind of interrogating the gender ideals of this film. Um, having the the quote unquote true story being the women's story is is also its own problem, right? It is this assumption of, uh, of extra truthfulness of of extra emotional intelligence on on the part of women when that's you know that's its own kind of uh, you know pedestals its own cage yada yada. Right, right, for sure. So uh, I will say uh, I, I do love, and we've kind of circled around this, so I would like to throw a dart at it. We've been talking about the idea of higher loyalties. Uh, both, you know, in, in my syllabus, but also just kind of in, in terms of Dustin, you talked about whether or not uh, a country or a people would throw their should or would throw their lot behind somebody who's willing to do great violence on their behalf. Uh, it is pretty cool uh, to find the thing that you're willing to get shot by a thousand uh, arrow cops for. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. uh, and I think nameless rules in that regard. I, I respect. Uh, the heck out of him and fl and Flying Snow, honestly, uh, and Sky are kind of the three characters most committed to dying uh, for peace, uh, even if peace means greater chaos. 
uh, and, and a lack of unity. And I just, I don't know, I, I think we, we've talked a lot about the, the ideal of unifying a country or a people. And I just want to spend a little bit more time talking about the, the characters and the uh, ideology behind, you know, maybe a, a lack of unification. Okay. I, I, well, and really, that's all I have to say was I think it's cool. It's a cool idea. I yeah. don't know. Uh, I, I, you know me. That these, these are my politics, obviously, listener. I am. I'm always in favor of letting communities decide their own thing, uh, and not have somebody telling them what they should or shouldn't be doing. Um, but it, it is interesting, especially in the confines of of this particular story, uh, to see that that ideal kind of lifted up, even if it again becomes ideologically confused by the end of it. Yeah, I, I tend to agree. And again, my politics tend not to align with the film, but that does not, you know, detract from my enjoyment of it uh, at all. But yeah, I do think that in in the end, the film sort of lands on a let's bygones be bygones, and let's uh, well, uh, it becomes a, a film very similar to The Dark Knight, right? We got to trust one noble person with great power to do great and terrible things and to uh, violate certain civil and uh, human rights in order to bring about a quote unquote greater good. And even uh, if that go ahead, greater good. Yeah. Even if that greater good ends in that same dude conscripting like a million people uh, to build a, a bunch of clay pots the size of adult men. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, it turns out history tells us that that does not work out so shiny. Um, and, and I think maybe that's the only possibility of this tale being subversive is that I, I'm sure Jenga Mu is aware of history. Sure. And even though the film is not doing it, even though the film is making the sort of strong, it's our land, and sometimes we have, you know, Mao Zedong, sure he did bad things, but he brought us together. I mean, it seems to be that's the apology here in the film, uh, for the most part, uh, looking at the Glorious Revolution and all that stuff. Um, but um, that knowing that and using this figure as a sort of proto-Mao to do that does tend to... Uh, take take down um, authoritarianism a, a rung or two. And so I, I think there's a possibility for subversion there in the film, but you almost have to read it cross-grained to get there, if that makes sense. No, it makes perfect sense, and I think very, that, that's kind of uh, – that, that's a very – succinct way to articulate uh, a feeling I've been talking around, I think, the entire episode. So, yeah, well said, man. All right. Well, are there any other big major themes here in the uh, the old movie hero? I mean, it's Purdy. Um, we got that, but I don't know. If, I mean, that, the set design is great. We should definitely recognize set designers more often. Okay, seeing there are none, let's render a verdict then on uh, Zhang Yimou's hero. Uh, what do you say, Dalton? Show for trash. Yeah, you got to shelf this one, man. Like you said, like it is. Uh, uh, it's just that damn good. All right. Well, thank you very much for that, Mr. Dalton. Sir. What do you say, Arthur? Show for trash. Uh, I think this is a shelfable film. For sure, for sure, for sure. Thank you for that. Arthur, I am also going to say shelf. It's already on my shelf, and I picked the movie in a marathon for me. So, yeah, you know it's going to be on my shelf already. So our um, consensus there ought to direct your film watching in the future, dear listener. Um, Dalton, say the social media pluggy things, and I'll say the last thing. That's right, listener. There's social media plugs to be done. Uh, if you want to send us a long-form feedback, that's goodtrashgenrecast at gmail.com. Do you have thoughts on whether or not uh, warriors can ever lay down their swords? Will they only ever try to expand their borders once they've unified their own country? Hard to say. You can let us know what you think, goodtrashgenrecast at gmail.com, or on Twitter, at good underscore trash. You'll find links to uh, the Good Trash Genrecast episodes as they come out. Uh, you'll also find uh, retweets and links to episodes of The Praise Down with Heath and Alex and The Wheel of Randy, hosted by Dan Wade, which I believe is on a uh, – concluded its first season or is about to. So we're getting ready to go on to a, a break on that one. Uh, but, again, at good underscore trash to keep up with all the Good Trash Media podcasts and to you know, keep up with movie news and other stuff that uh, in the world of, of watching films that we're having fun with. Uh, if you want to help us keep the lights on and pay some web hosting fees, et cetera, you can go to patreon.com forward slash GTM. Uh, there's uh, lots of fun bonus content for you there, chiefly among them being uh, Good Trash Archdiocese, which is a Monster of the Week actual play podcast in which Arthur is the game master and Dustin and I are the lowly uh, actors dancing for our, our beautiful director uh, and, and trying to make sure we uh, you know get the right shots in during the golden hour. Otherwise, Arthur will throw things at us. Um, that's it. That's social media. That's all you need to know about what we're doing on the Internet. All right. Well, thank you very much for that, Dalton. So I get one more pick, right? And my uh, my requirement is that it has to be art house. Yes, 
or experimental or weird. Right? Correct. Weird is it, it, the the most Dustin of the Dustin yep. picks. Trademark Dustin. So we've kind of gotten there a little bit already, I think, so far with our selections. But uh, I'm going to go hard into the paint. Uh, here oh, we're going to go back to 1977. A little bit of Russian filmmaking here, and Andrei Tarkovsky's Stalker for our <sighs> our uh, last final uh, film of the uh, marathon. Oh, Dustin, you love mm, to see I it. I see more communist cinema from from the the liberal college professor himself. I see. Yeah, uh, maybe. Uh, I'm kidding. I'm very excited to watch Stalker. I have been putting off c- catching up with this movie for the better part of 15 years now, so I'm pretty excited. If you're listening right now, dear listener, that film is available on the Criterion channel, so uh, watch beforehand and uh, listen up as we discuss. It'll be a good time, but you keep watching, we'll keep talking, and we'll see you all next time. I'm not I'm not afraid.